Matthew chapter 27, let's begin in verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what, what is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw the, down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and, and hanged himself. But the chief priest took the silver pieces and said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury because they are the price of blood. And they consulted together and brought with them the potters, bought with them the potter's field to, to bury strangers in. Therefore, the field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver of the value of him who was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced, and gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? So Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him, Not a word, not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with, with that just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, which of, which of the two do you want me to release to you? They said, Barabbas. And Pilate said to them, What then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all, notice the word all, they all said to him, Let him be crucified. Then the governor said, Why, why, what evil has he done? But they cried out all the more, saying, Let him be crucified. When Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. And all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him, and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. When they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his hand, right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him, put his own clothes on him, and led him away to be crucified. Now as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, him they compelled to bear his cross. And when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. 
sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And they put up over his head the accusation written against him, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then the two robber, then two robbers were crucified with him, one on his right and, the, and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders said, He saved others. Himself He cannot save. If He is the King of Israel, let Him now come down from the cross and we will believe Him. He trusted in God. Let Him deliver Him now if He will have Him. For He said, I am the Son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with Him reviled Him with the same thing. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over all the land. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, this man is calling for Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let us see if Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split, and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly this was the Son of God. And the many women who followed Jesus from Galilee ministered to him were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. When Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. So, when they, so, so they went and made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. Let's pray together. Father, we have... We feel so inadequate looking at this account, not understanding fully what happened there, knowing that it's far beyond our capacity to, to fully comprehend what happened with the cross. But Lord, we know You have purposes for these verses for us. And so we yield our hearts to You, Lord, and we want You to accomplish every amazing purpose that You have for each one of us and collectively as a church as we look into Your Word and look at this amazing expression of Your love. We commit this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we're about a month away from Good Friday when we celebrate Good Friday, but today really is Good Friday because we're looking at 
the death of Jesus. And, and as I always am, when I've taught on the cross, I feel very, very inadequate. I feel very, very overwhelmed. I don't feel like I do it justice. I mean, it's the case in many ways in any passage that I teach because of His Word being so amazing and so majestic and so just supernatural. But especially when you're talking about the cross and you're talking about how He suffered for us, it's very difficult. But He knows that we're frail. He knows that we're weak. He knows that we're inadequate apart from His Holy Spirit. And the Spirit says amen to the verses in our hearts uniquely. And so I know He'll do that for us uh, this morning. The cross is supposed to do, to do a work in us as believers. Sometimes we think the cross is only for unbelievers to consider. But he, we know from Him instituting uh, Holy Communion that we're supposed to look back at the cross. And its, and its work doesn't end when we become believers. The work of the cross in the sense of our thankfulness for what He has done for us continues to work in our hearts and our lives in an amazing way. First of all, we become dumbfounded over and over again by His love. Because we can go so deep and so deep into this account and the other accounts that, that are in the Gospels, but we never fully mind the depths of God's love and His sacrifice that He made for us and that no man would have ever made this up. No man would have ever made up that God would come Himself and die on the cross for us and offer salvation as a free gift that it was fully paid for on the cross. That He said, for it is finished on the cross. The full and satisfying payment for the forgiveness of our sins. We're dumbfounded by the love. We know that Romans 5.8 says that while we were still sinners, He died for us. That, that no greater love can be shown. That, that He died for us even when we didn't know Him. Even though we didn't know that we needed Him. Even when mankind believed that they were that they were adequate to reach God. You know, all man, man-made religion is man's attempt to reach God. Christianity is the only one that is God's attempt to reach man and, and has that full satisfying payment made on the cross so that we can be justified by faith receiving a free gift of eternal life. And it just provokes worship. That's another thing that the cross does in our lives. It provokes worship because we see that He would lay His life down. I've been trying to highlight as we've gone through this account that there was nothing that was careening out of control and he was swept away by what man's plans were, but that he was slain before the foundation of the world and that he gave up his life. And we'll see that further, but it just provokes worship. It also communicates the seriousness of sin. And the Holy Spirit uses that in our lives and he demonstrates to us that if Jesus paid this high a price, then what are we doing living in willful disobedience? What are we doing having a flippant attitude, a casual attitude regarding sin? It's supposed to work in our lives to make us want to be more holy, more like Christ. It also shows the power of forgiveness. The power of God's forgiveness in, in our lives and other people's lives. But then we're going to see in another account Him say, you know, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And so we, if He can do that, and I know He's God and all of that, but He's an example to us. The power of that forgiveness there extended to all mankind is a model for us related to the power of the forgiveness that we can offer in people's lives. Have you ever forgiven someone that has just done something horrible to you? Deplorable to you? 
And you completely, because of Christ's forgiveness in our lives as the basis for it, and the agape love that He provides as a fruit of the Spirit, you're able to let them off the hook and forgive them and how God can use that in their lives. Being forgiven of something very heinous and very serious is life-changing. So it communicates this the importance of forgiveness. But then it also, the cross to us as believers, it demands equality. It shouts to us that we're that we're all one, that we're that we're equal uh, in, in God's eyes, related to value. As it's been said, the the the, the ground on the, at the cross is all is completely level. That we're all sinners. None of us are better or superior to anybody else. We're all completely in the same situation. We're all needing forgiveness, and that's supposed to produce humility. But there's so many other things that you could make your own list on and on of all the purposes that God would have of us looking at this amazing cross. I do want to mention before we start here that there's nothing that he suffered in this account that we're going to look at that was unnecessary. I guarantee you the father's love for his son, just like our love for our children, which we know doesn't even compare to the love that he has for us. We are not going to let our children go through anything more than they have to related to the the plan that God has for them, related to discipline, related to just anything, related to training them up and so forth. And and the father's not going to let the son go through one thing more than what's necessary. So often we think that the cross and how when he died on that cross, that's where the the what we deserved or the punishment that we deserved began and end ended. But it, from that garden, everything that he went through, from that arrest and all, all the, uh, even his contemplating and sweating great drops of blood, as it were, in, in, as he's praying and travailing, all of those things, it all speaks to what he what was required of him related to his cup. We've talked about the cup related to communion. The cup is a symbol of our apportion. That's why we call apportioned is a cup holds a certain portion. And it was God's plan. It was his cup. He asked the, the, the Peter or uh, James and John, can you drink of the cup that I'm going to drink of? And they said, we, we can. <laughs> it's like, what did you just say? You are not going to be able to drink fully of the cup that the Christ is going to uh, drink, but they're going to have their own cup. And they're, and they're going to suffer as a result of their faithfulness to the Lord. So let's begin in verse 1. We're told in verse 1, when morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. Remember, we saw this last week. He was already arrested the night before. And there was a, there was a, a mock court related to the high priest, and they shouldn't have done that at night and everything. And, and so he was already abused already up to this point, probably didn't get very much sleep if if getting any sleep, we, we have no idea. But this happened in the morning when morning came. Notice we're also told that the chief priests and elders of the people plotted to put him to death. They had these plans and they had plotted. And, and, and it was, they weren't, we're told here in the verse that there's not, that those, that plan or that strategy hadn't been fully crystallized until this time, till the morning of his crucifixion. And then lastly, something that's passed over. Notice it says of the people there. All the chief priests and elders of the people. I don't know of another place where it ties the, the people to those religious leaders, but here it does. And it's not by accident that the Holy Spirit puts it in there because they did represent the people in many ways. They were their leaders. And that makes them even more guilty because they're supposed to be leading the people to the Messiah that they were speaking about and, 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 and pointing people back to in the Old Testament 
but they hadn't been good examples. They hadn't been good um, you know, people that were leading them the right direction. Verse 2, And when they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. And the key word there in verse 3, in the middle of verse 3, to understand Judas is the word remorseful. Remorseful is a really key word. Uh, it's, it means regret. He was regretting his decision. He was sorry about his decision. But he didn't repent. It's a whole different word. God could have put that in there if he had repented. He did not repent because repent includes change. Repentance, that Greek word for repentance means a change of mind. And it's a change of mind that results in a change of direction. So the fact that he did not repent and he ended up taking his life demonstrates he hadn't repented yet because it would have said that he repented. So it's a great contrast to Peter because Peter wept bitterly. There was repentance with Peter. Peter did turn back to the Lord. There was a change of mind. There was a desire to do what's right and to not be self-dependent anymore, but to be dependent upon God. And God accepted him back. He, he, he told him beforehand, Peter, the Satan has asked you to ask me to sift you as wheat, asked of you to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed that, that your faith would not fail. And when you return, that was gracious of Jesus to say to him, when you return, strengthen your brethren. And he, and he sure did. So there's a big contrast between Judas and Peter. Now notice Judas's testimony in verse 4, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to us? You see to it. Now we're gonna, I want you to mark this because there's going to be, in this chapter, there's going to be two other times where the truth about Jesus is going to be uttered. And we're going to see it two more times, but this first one here is of from from Judas himself, his betrayer, says that I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. So that's the first time. And let's mark that and let's watch for the second and third time. Verse five. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. Now sometimes people look at this and go, well, in Acts chapter one, it talks about him falling and having his in insides burst and so forth and so it's likely that the rope broke or there was an earthquake or something that caused his body to fall so there's no contradiction between his insides bursting forth and him hanging himself it's just those things happened after he hung himself just for you to know verse 6 but the chief priest took the silver pieces and said it is not lawful to the to put them in the treasury because they are the price of blood now just i want you to think of the insanity of this statement right here it is not lawful. What about the law related to uh, having a child at night? What about the law of killing somebody? And, and you know, they didn't have the power of capital punishment unless someone entered the, the temple and they weren't authorized. That's the only way that the Romans allowed them to commit uh, capital punishment. Now, they broke that with Stephen, but that law nevertheless stood. And so they needed Pilate to be able to do this or else they would have already killed him. So they weren't interested in the law, really. They were interested in their own plans. And so it's funny, you're going to say this little law here, but you broke so many laws just, I mean, what about bribing someone to, paying someone to commit murder? What about that little law? 
You know, that's uh, substantial, I would say. Verse 7, And they consulted together and brought with them the potter's field to buy strangers, to bury rather, strangers in. Therefore that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled. And I want to pause there because again, we've been seeing Matthew. He's trying to reach Jews about a Jew, the Messiah. And so he's going to be bringing up prophetic scriptures throughout the whole entire book as we've seen. And he doesn't stop now. And he's going to continue to make references. He won't even necessarily quote the book or quote that it was spoken by a prophet, but he will mention certain things that every single Jew that knew, that knew the Old Testament would recognize as, okay, that's, that's fulfilling Scripture. And we'll cover a few of those. So he quotes this, this, this prophecy by, spoken by Jeremiah the prophet saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the value of him who was priced. Now think about that. I held up, I think it was last week, but the, the little piece of silver, one of the pieces of silver, not the third, one of the 30. I mean, it could have been, but doubtful, but it's one of the currencies from that time. It's really heavy. Some of you, I showed it to that, to you after the service. Um, it was not a small sum. It was a very significant sum there. And so this, it, notice it says, this is the value that was put on him. Now think about that, how Christ is priceless. I mean, we could probably even say beyond priceless, whatever that means. He's God in human flesh. And so a price was put on him and everybody puts a price on him who betrays him. Everybody puts a price of value. What is it that, and that's why I have that coin to remind me to not betray the Lord Jesus, that nothing in this world is more valuable than him. Nothing's more valuable than following him, than, than having him fulfill his great plan through my life. It's a great physical reminder. But that's what that's what the prophecy said. The value of him was priced, whom they of the children of Israel priced. So everybody is involved in this. And we're going to see that the people are guilty as well, including us, because we put Christ on that cross as well. Verse 10, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Verse 11, now Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? So Jesus said to him, it is as you say. Now, the, John gives a lot more elaboration, and we'll see it when we get there. Again, I said to you that 90% of the Gospel of John is unique to the Gospel of John. So we're going to see a lot, and it came 30 to 40 years later. So just think about having three Gospels for all that time, and then John comes out with John. New York Times bestseller for sure. And then they realize that, wow, 90% of this we've never heard before. We've heard about it, but we've never seen it, you know, articulated to the, to the place that it is in the Gospel of John. I can't wait to get to that, to that Gospel. And, but in that Gospel, there's a lot more dialogue that goes back and forth between Pilate. Pilate says, what is truth? And all these things. There's a lot more going on. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered them, nothing. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he answered him, Not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Now last week, we looked at when Jesus before the high priest, we asked the question, Who's on trial here? Because, it, man, just he was, he was the one that was out of control, the high priest. He was the one that was, that was uh, you know, he was the one that being confronted by the Lord Jesus in that interaction. But it continues with Pilate. Pilate's the one on trial here in many ways. And again, John will reveal this you know, 30 to 40 years later. And this chapter 
I mean, this part here really fulfills some verses in Isaiah 53 because Isaiah speaks of the suffering servant. And he speaks of like a lamb, the Messiah would be uh, led to the slaughter and, and like a sheep before its shears is silent so he did not open his mouth. Just like a, a, a lamb going before its shears, it's a big, puffy, you know, lamb and, and they're, they're shaved, cutting off all the, the wool and, and the, 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 the sheeps are not complaining. They're not causing a, they're not complaining. They're not, they're not even talking. They're just quiet. And that's the picture there. It's fulfilling prophecy. Verse 15. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. So now this custom was to, to appease the Jews because there's this some, there's this principle of peace that the Roman Empire was proud of. It was called Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And they gloated and, and, and bragged about how much control they had over the people that they conquered and that, that there was peace. And it was a forced peace, but it was nevertheless a, a, a peace. And so you were judged as a ruler based on how well you controlled your people and, and that control was measured by the peace that was in that land. And, and we'll see that his decision was so much about pleasing the people even though he knew it was wrong. And so this was this custom here. Uh, and, and, he, and so it says in verse 16, and at that time they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release to you? Barabbas or Jesus who is called Christ? For he knew that they had handed him over because of envy. And what's interesting here, and it could be passed over, is that here the Holy Spirit reveals the, the religious leader's motive for what they were doing to Jesus. Notice the end of verse 18, he says, because of envy reveals the heart. They were envious of, of him. They wanted that control. They wanted that influence over the people. They had incredible influence over the people already. He was threatening that influence. And actually, it goes deeper than that. When you really study it, you'll see that, especially the Sadducees and Annas and all these, the high priests and Caiaphas, and they had a lot of control over that racket that was going on in the temple with the money changers and ripping people off and all of that. They were getting wealthy over that. Remember, the Pharisees were, were working men. There was about 6,000 in that day. They, were, they, were, they weren't professional clergy, so to speak, but the Sadducees and the scribes and all of that, they were. And that's how they got a lot of their money. So he was threatening their whole racket that they had going on. So it's interesting that he reveals that. Now Pilate's wife gets involved in verse 19. Look with me there. He says, While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife said to him, or sent to him, like saying a note or something saying have nothing to do with that just man for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him here's the second witness of Jesus's innocence remember first we saw it with Judas now we're seeing it with Pilate's wife and the law says out of two or three witnesses let let every matter be established that was the law that's where we get our witness kind of our arrangement now with our judicial system now is having to have witnesses and evidence and all that that's all based on the the mosaic law and so forth so here she is she's saying this have nothing to do with this just man he's just so judas has already called him innocent now she's calling him just and, and notice 
she says, I have suffered many things today in a dream because of, of him. See, it's like a foretaste of what's coming. It's a warning. It's very possible God's trying to reach them, trying to give them an opportunity, a way out. Why else would he do it? He's giving her a dream and warning her. And she's trying to warn him. God's trying to reach them, I believe. And he's, and it's a warning, like, yes, there's suffering going on. I, in this, even in this dream, it's nothing compared to the suffering if you reject him. They could have turned right then and become believers right then. They would have probably get, been, you know, executed by the Roman government, but they'd be on the right side of truth for eternity. As it's, as they say, you know, better to be a fool in the eyes of man than a fool in the eyes of God. Amen. So here, here they're, they're right before that, you know, Jesus here, and there's this interaction going on. And, and I think that, you know, he's trying to reach him. Verse 20. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the multitudes. Okay. So not only were they not leading them correctly, they're actually working against God's Messiah and persuading the multitude. They're going on and on about why he should be crucified, why he's not the Messiah, what he's claimed for himself, and all those things. They're guilty of that, that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they all, notice the word all, they all said to him, let him be crucified. Then the governor said, why? What evil has he done? But they cried out all the more saying, let him be crucified. They're getting in a frenzy, a murderous frenzy, speaking over the governor and saying, let him be crucified. They're just getting louder and louder and louder. And when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, again, this is how his rule is measured. If he can keep the people under control. There was no excuses. Rome did not receive any or accept any excuses for a lack of peace. In fact, he was removed from this because of, as a result, he didn't last very much longer after this decision because he could not control the people. So he was a, a, it was really self-centered because it was his own rule that was at stake. It wasn't that he was just insecure and just wanted the people's approval. If he didn't get the people's approval and this, this tumult kept rising and rising and rising and rising, it would get back to Rome and he would be removed. And that's what happened, actually. He took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this, notice, just person. You see to it. So you see that his betrayer, out of his own mouth said he was innocent and that the wife of his judge called him just. And then here, Pilate himself calls him just. His own judge calls him just. What better witnesses? Here, the, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were finding these false witnesses who couldn't even agree among themselves. <laughs> and here, the Holy Spirit provides his own two or three witnesses related to Jesus and his innocence. It's amazing. Three times in this chapter is pronounced just and innocent. Verse 25, And all the people answered and said, now notice it says all the people, and all the people answered and said, His blood be on us and on our children. 
Now, this is one of the most chilling verses in the whole Bible that they would say this. I mean, they are actually accepting the guilt of this, not just themselves, which would be bad enough, but they're also saying, we don't mind if you put our descendants and, and put this to their account as guilty. We, we don't care. This is how much we want Him crucified. And what did Jesus ever do? He healed people. He told the truth. He delivered people. He rose people from the dead. He spoke the truth. He loved people. He healed them. He multiplied loaves and fishes twice. He delivered people from demon possession. There was a man that, two men that were demoniacs and, and no one could even control them and he freed them. What did he possibly do to deserve anything? It wasn't as if he just never did anything wrong and stayed neutral his whole life in ministry. His whole life was given over, over to do good and to help people and to, to love people. But they say, his blood be on us and our children. And this verse has been greatly abused. Many people have abused the Jewish people since this time because of this verse. Christ killers. Not understanding that it's all of our sins that put him on that cross. And they, so it was everybody is at fault there. Let me read to you a few verses from another passage. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures and that He was buried and He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. The word our is very powerful. It's very revealing that He died for all of us. Again, it was His love that was holding Him on that cross when He gets nailed to that cross. He could have easily come down from that cross. But His love for all of us, he was all of mankind's sins were placed on Him. The ones that all the ones from Adam all the way up to the, to the point of that time and all of them into the future were paid for. The sins that we haven't committed yet, he took on himself. It's just amazing. So it's our sins. And then I want to read a portion of Isaiah 53 to you, verses 4 and 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon Him. And by His stripes, we are healed. We all like sheep. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. All of us. So yes, we could abuse this verse and we could say it's the Jewish people. There was a reaping of that decision that, that, that happened. We know that. And not just in the future related to their history, but, but individual, individually, unless they receive Christ. I believe many, many of these people were there on the day of Pentecost when Peter stood up and proclaimed that Gospel and they knew it because he nails them. The Holy Spirit nails them. And 3,000 were saved that day. Many of these people were there. So it's not like as if they're forever, there's no hope for them. There's hope for all of us as, as we turn to Christ and surrender our lives to Him. It's great to compare Matthew 27 and Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 was written about 750 years before the birth of Christ. 
and just see the, how vivid the description of the cross is in addition to Psalm 22. In many ways, it gives more detail than even the Gospels do. And it's, it's amazing testimony to the inspiration of, of the Word of God. Verse 26, Then He released Barabbas to them, and when He had scourged Jesus, He delivered Him to be crucified. Now, scourging, if you're new to the Bible, scourging, if you've seen The Passion of the Christ, you've seen that movie, you've seen uh, what that means in many ways. They would get these leather strips and they would interweave uh, bones and teeth and pieces of glass and pottery and all this, and they would whip you. And, and they would whip you until you gave a confession. And a lot of times the whipping stopped really quickly because they would confess that. But we know Jesus wasn't guilty. He was innocent. So He's not going to confess something that he didn't, he didn't commit. In fact, He could have confessed our sins at that time, but they would confuse that with his own sins, which he wasn't going to do. So he, he, he remained quiet. And they would keep going and keep going and keep going. And that's why I believe the, when the, he died sooner than they believed he would on the cross. That's part of it. Now then verse 27 says, Then the soldiers of, of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole garrison around him. And you can go right now to Israel and part of the praetorium, this, this room, that was part of the larger um, area there that the Romans had had right there at the temple on the Temple Mount. There or near the Temple Mount was was for protection because there was uprisings and upheaval all the time, and they wanted uh, a bunch of military near there so they can keep the people under control. And so he was brought before the Praetorium. There, there was a garrison. Notice a whole garrison, not part of it, a whole garrison around him. That's many soldiers. Now look, look let's look what they did to him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. This is mocking his royalty. And when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a, and a reed in his right hand, talking about like a scepter, like a king's scepter. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Then they spat on him. You ever had anyone spit on you? This is not just one person spitting on him. This is a bunch of people spitting on him and took the reed and struck him on the head, pushing that crown into his head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. Can't even imagine what that would be like. Not just experiencing that as a person, but experiencing it as God in human flesh. We're told elsewhere that Jesus holds all things together by the word of his power. He's holding atoms together. There's something called atomic glue. They don't understand how it happens. Why these charges are attracted to each other when they're the same charge. They should be, should be the opposite. He holds everything together. He's holding together the spit. He's holding together the reed, the, the, the crown of thorns. He's holding together the vocal cords that are mocking him. And, and, and he's holding together the, the knee that's bending to mock him. He's holding all of it together. And, and, and it's just horrible. I mean, can't even picture what that was like. Verse 32. Now, as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. And they could compel you to do that by Roman law. They could compel you to walk a mile to help them carry something. They put their sword, they put their sword on, on your shoulder and they would say the, the, the Rome in, in, um, wants you to do, I didn't use that word, but Rome tells you to do this or you're commanded by Rome to walk a mile and help us. And, and this was, they could do that. And that's what Jesus said when he said, to, they want you to go one mile, go two. 
You know, he's talking about going the extra mile. That's where that comes from. So they they um, they have him. They compel him to um, to carry his crossbar, his cross, and, and so that's what he that's what he did. Verse thirty three, and when they had come to a place called Golgotha, that is that is to say, place of a skull, they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. But when he t- had tasted it, he would not drink. Now this is an anesthetic, this gall, uh, and this would be to lighten the pain. Now, he refuses to drink this. This says a lot. This says that he didn't want anything numbing related to what he was going to go through. He, he needed, it was required. Do you think he would do it if he didn't have to related to what we deserved? No. But we, he, we weren't going to get an anesthetic in hell. He, he, he wasn't going to take this anesthetic to take this full wrath that the Father was going to pour out on his life in our place. He's not going to protect himself from the pain of that. He had nerves in his body, just like we have nerves in our body. And he wasn't going to protect himself from any of that. Just makes us want to worship him more. Just makes him want to love him more. Can't believe it. Then they crucified him and divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which is spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And this is quoting David. He's the prophet about which uh, Matthew, about whom Matthew speaks. And Psalm 22, you can read it. It was it was laid out there a thousand years. That that's a thousand years before Christ was born, and and they fulfilled this prophecy there beautifully. They gambled for his clothing. Verse 36. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And it's the key verse in Matthew, I believe. Because this is speaking to the purpose of the book. We've been going through this all the way through the Gospel of Matthew. The purpose is to show that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the King of the Jews. And it's ironic that it was placed above. And they later wanted that to be changed. That He claimed to be the King of the Jews. But God allowed that to be put up there because it was the truth. It was and is the truth that they, in in addition to us, they put Him on that cross. And, and, and it's, it's a fulfillment of his mission, him being on that cross and, and dying as the Messiah. The Messiah was to be cut off. Daniel spoke about it in depth that the Messiah would be cut off, but not for himself, it says. And they just couldn't understand how is God going to send the Messiah, have him reigned from David's throne forever, but yet have him be cut off. And because of that, some believed in two Messiahs. They just didn't understand he was going to not just come in one visit. He's going to come in two visits. And the second time, he's going to sit on David's throne and he's going to rule and reign forever. Then we're told in verse 38, then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and the other on the left. Again, he's referencing back to Isaiah 53. We're told in Isaiah 53 that he was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered with the transgressors. Verse 39, and those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads. How do you wag your head? You just shake your head no. That's what I see some people do when I'm teaching, unfortunately, sometimes. It's not encouraging, uh, but it happens sometimes. Nope. Or it's either this or this. 
And uh, that's not real encouraging. But they blasphemed him, wagging their heads. They're shaking their heads. They just like, he did all of this for other people. If he's so amazing, if he's the Messiah, why can't he save himself? It doesn't make any sense. And they blasphemed. They, they were told in verse 41, they, were, he, they mocked him. Verse 44, they reviled him. Do, do you think those things hurt? Yes. Those things hurt. If you have a heart at all and you care for people at all and you love them, and it hurts the worst when people say things to you that, that you love. And he loved everybody. He loved all of them. He loved his own people. He loved everybody in the world. And here they're saying this to him and they're blaspheming him and it hurt. But I'm telling you, it was necessary. Every bit of it was necessary. Not one bit of it would have been allowed apart from it being necessary. We have to be careful what we say, how we treat people with our words. Jesus said, when you've done these things to the least of these, you've done them to me. We have to be careful with what we say, with our words and so forth. Words hurt. but And God knows, God knows exactly what it feels like to be insulted and to, to be hurt with words. If you've been hurt with words deep, deeply and you've been mocked or you've been reviled, God knows exactly what that feels like, not just because of his omniscience and he knows everything, but because he experienced it himself in Christ. And it's, it's incredible encouragement to us because the, one of the biggest lies of all time is sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Words hurt and God knows it. And they hurt the Lord Jesus at this time. Verse 40, and saying, who, you who, dis, who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. And, and in John chapter 2, he says, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. And he's, it's, we're told he was talking about his body, but they thought he was talking about the temple. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and the elders said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. And it, that is true, but not in the way that they meant it. Because for him to save others, he could not save himself. That's the whole point. The innocent has to die for the guilty. And there was no other one innocent except the Lord Jesus. He's the only one that was completely innocent, that spotless Lamb of God. There was no other spotless person in this world without sin that could die in our place. So in that sense, yes, he can save others, but he can't save himself in order to do it. He has to give his life. They meant it in another way. So it's ironic that they said that. If he is king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. Do you believe that's true? I know the hardness of God's, I mean, a God of man's heart can be, I mean, they people say, put Jesus in front of me, let him do a miracle and I'll believe. But people in that day didn't believe when he did that. They still had hard hearts. If Judas could go through it the whole entire firsthand in the rooms, all the teaching. Remember John said at the end of the book of John, if all the works have been recorded, he said, I suppose not all the libraries in the world could fill the works of what Jesus did. Judas saw all of that and he still wasn't saved. So the heart is desperately wicked and deceitful. Who can know it? It's true. And so it doesn't mean that they would believe, but that wasn't what he was. He's not going to come back the second time. Uh, he's going to come back the second time in a way that is going to be appropriate. He trust, verse 43, He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Notice he says, if he will have him. If he will have him. If he's acceptable to God. We don't even know if he's acceptable to God. So if he is, then maybe God will deliver him. That's more blasphemy. 
Even the robbers who were crucified with Him reviled Him with the same thing. Now later, one of them receives Christ has a change of heart. But before that, he didn't. He was reviling Christ along with the rest of them. Verse 45, Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over the land. The day started for the Jews at 6 a.m. So the sixth hour is noon and the ninth hour is 3 p.m. So there was darkness from noon to 3 p.m. over darkness over all the land. People try to find eclipses and all. It's You know what? God doesn't need an eclipse. He could just turn the sun out just like that and then turn it back on. He's holding it all together. doesn't need to do that. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, David wrote this in Psalm 22, not knowing it was prophetic likely, but it was prophetic. There was something going on between him and the Father that we will never know because the sin of mankind was being laid upon Jesus. And the Father cannot look upon sin. He was that offering there. And there was some... I don't understand it. We'll never understand how God within the Godhead can allow this to happen, but it happened. It wasn't just He wasn't just quoting things to fulfill Scripture. He's meaning it. My God, my God, why, has, why have You forsaken Me? Everybody else has forsaken Me. And he knew this was from it's scriptural. He knew this is from the Old Testament, but somehow he said those words and meant them, and it was beyond what we even know. Again, there's so much mystery to this, so far, so much beyond what we could possibly comprehend, but he went through it for us. Verse 47. Some of those who stood there when they heard that said, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and offered it to him to drink. The rest said, let him alone. Let, let, let us see if Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. That's the perfect description of death for a Christian. Yielding up our spirit. And notice he says yielded. No one took it again. He yielded it. He yielded it up when it was time. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. So that temple veil was about 30 feet tall, 30 to 40 feet tall, about three feet thick that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And that was rent from top to bottom, communicating that access, God has done a work to create access between Him and mankind. And they say, oh, we have no record of that. The Jews didn't record that. It didn't, well, do you think the Jews would record that? Why do you think the Egyptians didn't record about the Exodus? Puts them in a little bit of bad light, I think. You know, would you put it in there? I wouldn't put it in there. If, if God had done that to, uh, to me, I wouldn't put that in the record. So of course it's not in there. But it communicates access. The word access, access, access. We don't need to go through a church anymore. We don't need to go through a religious leader anymore. There's no mediator between, except God between man, except, let me requote that. There's no mediator between God and man except the man Christ Jesus. And so he's the only one. You don't have to go through a man. You don't have to go through anybody else. It screams access. And there's an earthquake and all of those things. And I don't believe the earthquake ripped the veil. God doesn't need an earthquake to rip the veil. But, but a lot of things were going on. And it was communicating how dark it was for man to do what he did. And that the price that was being paid was a serious price. And we're told in verse 52, and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after His resurrection, 
they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Now they're not receiving, I don't believe they're, they're glorified bodies. They're just, their, their bodies that they had before were resurrected. And they appeared to people after the, the resurrection. And it was, it's just, it's just a sign of the power of the cross, the power of his resurrection, and that he's all about life. And, and he just, it's just like Dave Miller says, he couldn't help himself. He's just going to have life happen. He's just going to have the miraculous happen in the context of, of what he does. And it's, it's beautiful. Verse 54, So when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and the things that had happened, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. And, when, and many women who followed Jesus from Galilee ministered to him were there looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of uh, James and Joseph, and, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who, took, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man came to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body to be given to him. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb, which he had hewn out of the rock, and he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. So Joseph of Arimathea was wealthy. You couldn't own a tomb like that and already have it hewn out unless you were wealthy at that time. So he had it all prepared for himself and he put the Lord Jesus in that tomb. Verse 61, And Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, after three days I will rise. Therefore, command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away and say to the people, he has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, you have a guard, go your way, make it secure as you know how. So they went and made the, the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. So they would seal the stone. This big, massive boulder would be rolled in front of the, the, the entrance to the tomb. And then they'd put a Roman seal on it. And, and it was very, like, the, basically it was like putting wax on one side of it and then stretching a rope across the edge of the, of the, the boulder. And they would seal it with wax on the other side. And they had the insignia of the authority of Rome and all of that saying, if you mess with this, you're messing with Rome. And then they set a guard, which could have been up to 16 soldiers or more, 16 to 32 soldiers there. And they were in shifts and all of that guarding this thing. And so what's, what's hilarious to me is that sealing a stone and setting the guard would do a lot to prevent a break-in, <laughs> but do nothing to prevent a break-out. And what it does is it actually demonstrates the validity of the resurrection because it, if, it would have been great if he wasn't the Messiah and, he, and it would have worked wonderfully. He wouldn't have been able to, that body would have been in there. But if he was the Messiah and he was going to raise, what it does is it proves that he's the Messiah because no one could have come in and stole his body. The Jews wouldn't have, didn't steal his body and proclaim that he rose from the dead because they wanted to parade his body around the city and say, see, he was a liar. He was a liar. The disciples didn't. They all, fl they all fled and they gave their lives saying he rose from the dead. And if he didn't rise from the dead, he couldn't promise them that he would raise their bodies to life. So we, and they didn't go to the wrong tomb. I love that one. That's great. They went to the wrong tomb. Oh, they couldn't figure that out. You know, it was a pretty famous tomb, uh, <laughs> there. So it's just beautiful because all these things were done to make it even more evidential that Jesus rose 
from the from the dead and it's just a testimony of his resurrection power as they say you know fr- friday's a bad day but sunday's coming you know and the, re- the resurrection morning would come and he would raise from the dead just like he said he would he would appear to women first and so forth and he would appear many times and appear to them and and eat with them and all of that and and it's a beautiful beautiful testimony of his power supernatural power but that cross was a sign of his eternal supernatural love extended to you and it's something that we are supposed to meditate on and think about and consider and pray through and and let the lord show us the significance of that for us in our lives for the rest of our lives as we go through the rest of our lives discovering more and more of his grace and it says in the ages to come we will discover the riches of his grace it's all tied back to the cross it all focuses on that so may he use the cross in our lives to make us more of the disciples that he's calling us to be. We, we're called to be disciples. We're called to be Christ followers. We're called to be an extension of him in this world. Just like we heard Mark testify of, of just being a, a vessel through whom he can do miraculous things. If we don't have a grasp on what he did for us, then we're going to have trouble communicating that to other people. Because that is the gospel, that he died according to the scripture and, and he was raised according to the, on the third day according to the scriptures. That's the gospel. And we have to be able to communicate that. So let's allow this to have its work in us, especially as we worship now. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for all these treasures and these riches that we see in your word. Father, help us to live in response to your great sacrifice applied to us. Thank you, Jesus, that you died for us on that cross, that you allowed all of that punishment to happen so that we could live in a relationship with you and we could live in a relationship that's based on what you did for us, not what we do for you. And I pray, Father, that you would help anybody here that has that mixed up in their minds, that they think they can earn your approval, that they can earn your love, that they can earn your acceptance, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would help them to to gaze back at the cross to see how you they had your approval way back then when they when you died for them and that if you did that for them back then that there's no limit to what you'll do for them now and that you're for them and that if you're for them who could be against them help them to see lord help us all to see the depth of your love from that cross and have it and, and let us help us to allow its work to continue in our lives for all eternity We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.